All right, well, let's get started. And let me start our time with a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us once again as we open your word, that we might understand it aright, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that we might learn from them, that we might be blessed by what we read and hear as you've promised in your word. So help us to understand it aright by your Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've been considering the, the letters to the seven churches. Um, we've, we've, we considered the first four last time, and we're going to get to the the last three, uh, Lord willing, here. Um, we've been calling this the first cycle of the book, thinking about seven cycles as the way the book has been organized. Um, and who remembers what the theme of the first cycle is? The church in its suffering must remain faithful, right? Um, we should, we're always going to come back to that those ideas, those broad ideas, to make sure that every one of the cycles we're remembering what we're talking about. So the first cycle of seven is the seven letters, and we saw that there's an introduction in chapter one, and then in chapters two and three, we get into the actual letters written to the churches in Asia Minor, Um, and they all have different themes um, that the letters touch on, and they all circle back to that introductory chapter one. So Jesus always identifies himself in the letter that we saw. Um, He always uses a kind of self-identification that relates back to the vision that John saw in chapter 1 of Revelation. Um, He always identifies himself in an important way that touches on the theme of the letter, of of the church that he's writing these letters to. Um, And they're all very different in the kinds of letters they receive. So some churches receive very bad letters, you might say, um, that a lot needs to change. So Ephesus is one of those. Smyrna receives a very good letter uh, that they're doing very well. No criticism, only commendation. Um, that that's a kind of characteristic of both. And then a couple sort of troubled churches. Um, things that are going well and things that need to be changed. Uh, so Jesus has both commendation for them and criticism for them. And we look through uh, those things last time and, and calls to the churches to do Uh, what they need to do, either continue the good things, get away from the bad things, um, and the promise of blessing for those who continue. So we saw that generally uh, there there are themes in these letters as well, love, life, judgment, searching, um, that have touched on these churches. And so we want to continue our study of of these letters um, and go now to the fifth letter that was written to Sardis. And that letter is recorded for us in uh, chapter three of the book of the Revelation. So If you take out your scriptures and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, we'll read this letter that is to be written to the church in Sardis. Um, That's verses 1 through 6, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. 
Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, we could say the letter to Sardis is a letter about holiness. That's really the theme of this letter that comes to uh, the church in Sardis, an appeal for holiness. Um, we can kind of go through this letter the way we've been going through the letters. Notice first how Jesus identifies himself to this church. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, we saw that in uh, earlier in the, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, images of God holding the seven stars. Um, and we're helped there because we're told that those are the seven angels of the churches and the seven spirits of God. Um, the sevenfold spirit, we might say, the Holy Spirit of life. So our attention is immediately drawn to the Holy Spirit and the holy angels. The holiness of Christ is being put on display as he comes to this church uh, that has not been um, entirely faithful in how they've lived. Um, there are no words that really commend this church before Jesus' severe warning comes to them um, about what needs to change. Uh, they have a good reputation, apparently. Um, you have the reputation of being alive. Um, it's a good reminder to us that just because a church has a reputation for being something doesn't mean that that's how the Lord regards the church. Um, they have a reputation of being alive, but in fact, Jesus says, you are dead. And so he tells them that they have to repent of these works um, that are soiling their garments. Um, they've soiled their garments with sin. Again, this is not specific to us. We're not told what kind of sin has soiled them. We're not, we're not told what kind of unholiness they've been struggling with in any particular way. Um, but it could be that they're experiencing some of the same troubles that were being experienced in Smyrna. Um, we know from history that Sardis had one of the largest and most important um, Jewish communities in Asia Minor. Um, and so we can think of the church in Smyrna had trouble with their Jewish neighbors, and maybe the church in Sardis was having similar trouble. Maybe they were too close to um, adopting the, the culture around them. Um, we don't know exactly what the problem is, but we know that there's a serious problem that needs to be turned around. Um, and, and sometimes scripture does this, not being so specific about what the problem is, because these, these letters are also written for us. Right? And if, if the sin was so specific, we in our own sinfulness would usually say, well, that's their problem, not ours. Um, and the fact that this is not real, real specific as to what exactly the sin is, it's just a reminder that we can, th there's a danger that churches can fall into this trap, have the reputation of being alive, but be filled with people who are dead, um, who are, you know, who have soiled garments, who are not walking as they should walk. And the Lord sees the things as they really are. Um, he has the eyes to see. The sevenfold spirit knows. He knows what's going on in the church and he knows what needs to change. And mercifully, he comes to them with a, with a threefold call, right? Um, it, it could be bad news if you're the church to hear Jesus writing to you and say, people might think you're alive, but you're dead. 
I mean, you might be tempted to say, well, if I'm dead, what am I supposed to do? There's not a whole lot that, that dead people can do. And so what does Jesus say to them? Wake up. Right? That, that those who are in the Lord are falling asleep when they die. And so they need to wake up. Um, that's a, it's a wake-up call, a literal wake-up call from the Lord to this church. You need to wake up from what you're doing. Um, he says you need to remember what you've received and heard. Um, we need to come to our senses, and then we need to remember what we've been taught, what we've been given, and then we need to keep it and repent. Um, you notice how none of this is rocket science, right? How, do, how does a church that's struggling, how do sinners that are struggling, what do they need to do to turn themselves around? They need to wake up, right? They need to see things as they are. They need to remember what they've heard, and they need to repent and keep the things that they've heard. Right? You, you need to hear the word of God, but we also have to do it. And when it says believe, we have to believe. When it says obey, we have to obey. When it says trust, we need to trust. When it says rest, we need to rest. Um, because going our own way is not doing us any good. What it, what is it, what's the good if you have a reputation of being alive but are dead? And so it should be a comfort to us that the Lord is coming to say, I want to tell you what's going on so that you can live. Right? It's a blessing that the Lord is coming to this church and not leaving them in their terrible condition, but telling them to wake up and to turn around. And they need to do that quickly because if they don't, the Lord is going to come against them like a thief in the night. Maybe thief in the night conjures up bad images of you know, scary, poorly produced movies um, about the end times. But what, what, what is Jesus saying here? Um, what, what is the imagery he's using? Well, he's using that imagery that he used in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, this was a warning that Jesus gave in his earthly ministry about final judgment. And it's a warning he gives this church now about judgment as well. This is a warning of judgment coming. Um, but as he, as he does in some other places in these letters, he recognizes that it's not the whole church that's been engaged in this, right? That even in, a, even in a church where you would characterize it as troubled, as dead, as having a reputation for being alive, but not being alive, as being soiled, he recognizes that that's not true of everyone in the church. That while that might categorize the church as a whole, it doesn't, it doesn't say everything about everyone in the church, there are people who have not soiled their garments in the church, um, who have remained faithful. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Um, this isn't a letter of wholesale condemnation to everyone in the church. It's a reminder that even in troubled churches, there are faithful Christians. Um, and so we want, Jesus doesn't want them to feel as if they've been overlooked. Um, they are walking in white. They will walk with him in white. They are worthy. And it's the encouragement to the rest of them to walk as they are walking. Um, to be worthy. 
Um, and that call to conquer, to overcome, uh, comes with that promise um, in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Um, you can be clothed in white if you repent and turn to the Lord. And this promise that I will acknowledge you before my Father, uh, Jesus had said that also in Matthew 10, 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Um, and there's this wonderful reference to your names will be written in the book of life. Um, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Um, that's a theme that will continue to come up in the book of Revelation, that there are people whose names are written in the book of life. Um, and that's going to become very important in the judgment that comes in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, verse 12, we read, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Then a few verses later in verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, the, the judgment reveals there are two books. Um, this will become clearer, clearer as we go along, but there are two books. There's a book of deeds, and you don't want to be in that book. Um, and there's a book of life. Um, beautifully, as the, as the book goes on, there, we'll, we'll find out there's a book with deeds in it, and there's a book with names in it. Um, the, of the righteous, their names are remembered. The Lord has given them a name. Um, against the wicked, it's their deeds that are remembered. Um, and so it's a rich promise that the Lord is making to his people here. To so the one who conquers, to so the one who overcomes, who, who heeds the warning, who, who heeds the wake-up call, uh, who turns to me in repentance and faith, I will never blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what, he, what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, so that's a reminder to us. There are, there are churches that struggle corporately with unholiness, um, and the word that God brings to them is, you need to clean it up. Um, and again, it's not rocket science. You just need to go back to what you've been taught. Go back to what you believe. Keep it. Repent of your sin. Return to the Lord, um, and He will clothe you in white. And so there, there's the, the, this church has a stern warning, uh, that, that imagery of the book of life, um, is very important, but it's a great reminder that there are churches that struggle. In the midst of struggling churches, there are still holy Christians. Um, we have a tendency in our day to want to always be making sort of false choices. Is that a group of good people or is it not a group of good people? Um, and, you know, Jesus makes the careful distinction of saying, the church, not good. All the people in it are not necessarily tainted by what's troubling the church. Um, and I think we should maintain that same reality and perspective when we look at other churches. Because people like today to say, that church, bad. Everybody in that church, bad. Um, and Reformed people can sometimes be the worst at this. Um, so we want to we be clear about some of those things. So that, that's the letter that comes to the church in Sardis about holiness. Are there any questions about, about that? Okay, so let's go on then to the church in Philadelphia, not in Pennsylvania, in Asia Minor. 
the church in Philadelphia. So this, that we find that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so the letter to uh, the church in Philadelphia is a letter of faithfulness. After what we just read, you know, it might sound like an ominous beginning when he says, um, I know your works. Uh, Usually we always think that's a, if God comes to you and says, I know your works, you're usually expecting that bad things will follow. Um, And it's a good reminder to us that the Lord comes in this case and says, I know your works, and then says nothing but complimentary things about this church. Um, We should... It would be interesting to note that the church in Milan took the name Philadelphia as the name of their, their church because they, they said, we, we're little but we love much. Um, and so that, that is a model church uh, of faithfulness that we hear. Jesus only has good things to say for them. He identifies himself as the one who is holy and true, who has the key of David to open and shut life and death. Uh, we saw that picture in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 18. Um, again, that's, that reminds us of the power of Jesus. I can open doors that no one can shut, and I can shut doors that no one can open. Um, and the glorious news that comes to, to the church in Philadelphia says, I've opened a door that no one can shut. Um, you know, if, if he shuts it, there's no one who can open it. But the good news that comes to them is, I've opened it to you and no one can shut it. Um, that's that's the, the encouraging thing that they're told. Just like the church in Smyrna, this is only about commendation and encouragement to them. Uh, that they've been a good church, that they need to persevere in what they've done. Although they are weak, they have remained faithful. Um, he promises that their enemies who um, like the struggles that Smyrna faced, being accused of not really being the true people of God, he said "There's you will be revealed to be the true people of God. Uh, that you are the true Jews, meaning the true Israel of God. Um, he urges them to remain faithful, um, saying that I will remain faithful to you. I will hold that door open. Uh, I will be faithful. You remain faithful. Um, God's people always need to hear that. Jesus' encouragement to faithfulness uh, comes with that assurance that he will be faithful uh, to his people. 
Um, So encouragement, they will be preserved from the great condemnation that's awaiting those who dwell on the earth. Um, Now this is one of those kinds of things in Revelation where you might go immediately online and try to figure out, all right, now what is the great condemnation coming to the earth, right? You know, everyone's going to want these questions answered. Well, the, the important thing to remember throughout Revelation is those who dwell on the earth are those who are awaiting judgment. There's always two people in the book of the Revelation. There are those who dwell on the earth, and there are the citizens of heaven. Um, and so whenever, whenever Revelation is talking about those who dwell on the earth, it's always talking about those sinners who have not turned to the Lord in repentance and faith on whom the wrath of God is coming. Um, and Revelation is going to make it clear there are two camps to be in in this world, and you don't want to be those who dwell on the earth. Um, we saw a little bit of that in chapter 1 also as a, as a bit of an introduction. That they will see the one whom they pierced and they will wail on account of him. Right? The, those who dwell on the earth, that's, that's the state that they are in. And so um, what could be taken as this sort of mysterious, what is the great you know, tribulation that's coming on the earth? Um, and this is where I'm going to bust out my charts and maps and graphs, you know. No, keep them in your back pocket. What is the great tribulation that's awaiting those who dwell on the earth? It's the final judgment. Um, So those who dwell on the earth always refers to the unrepentant and wicked who have rejected Jesus. Um, And what this marvelously implies is that Christians are already living as citizens of heaven. Um, That's the beautiful perspective that Revelation always gives us. It always says, my people are not the people who dwell on the earth. My people are the heavenly people. They're, they're not part of this group. They're not part of those who dwell on the earth. They're, they're my heavenly people. Um, and it's a wonderful thing to hear that perspective that Jesus has on his church. That when he looks at us, he doesn't consider us to be people of earth. He considers us to be people of heaven. Uh, that, that that's who we are according to Christ. Uh, that's how we're reckoned. We might not be in heaven now, but we belong to heaven. Uh, we saw that when we were going through the book of Philippians, didn't we? That your citizenship is in heaven, and from there you await a Savior. Um, that, that's who we are. That's who Jesus reminds his people. Um, and he promises that although there's going to be a brief time of suffering on earth, um, they are going to be kept from the hour of trial that's facing the rest of the earth. That's, that's facing those who are going to experience the, the hour of judgment. When Christ comes, he's going to save them from that. They're going to be spared that. And then he has, gives them that you know, wonderful reminder in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Um, hold fast to what is true and you will receive the crown of life. Um, that too is in you know, verse uh, verse 8 of chapter 1. The, the crown of life was talked about. So um, we, have, we have the crown of life being referred to, um, and no one can seize your crown. Hold fast, no one will seize your crown. Um, and the call is to stand firm with the Lord, that in the pull of the world, when you're little and weak, the world is pulling you to faithlessness, trying to pull you over to where the world is. Um, and the Lord is saying, stay with me. Um, Hold fast, I'm coming soon. Again, that's a reminder from chapter 1. The time is near. 
um, and they're to hold fast to Christ and given wonderful promises. Um, they will be pillars forever, forever in the temple of God. Um, the, the church is described in 1 Timothy 3.15 as the pillar of God. Um, there, th- that's, that's the symbolism that's being used here. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Um, now you're not a literal pillar in a literal temple, in a literal Jerusalem. Um, I don't think even the most hardcore literalist, quote unquote, would say that you're going to turn into a temple. You're going to turn into a pillar in heaven. You're not like Lot's wife. You know, you're not going to turn into a pillar of of anything. Um, it's a reminder to us that there is symbolism in the book of Revelation that's meant to be read symbolically. Um, and a reminder to us that when you read things properly, you read things literally the way that they're intended to be read. Um, because we'll read later, right, that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. And why isn't there a temple in the New Jerusalem? The Lord is our temple, right? <laughs> the Lord is the temple. That's, that's why there is no temple. I mean, in one sense, the whole of the New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies. Um, and so we always have to remember that Revelation is filled with symbolism that's meant to be taken symbolically. And even somebody who is a hardcore literalist and says, no, I take everything literally, I don't think they think they're going to be literally pillars in literal temples in a literal New Jerusalem. Uh, you have to see that there is symbolism in the book of Revelation. Um, and to read it literally is actually to read the symbols as symbols. Um, you know, if you read... The Lord of the Rings as a true story, you're not reading it literally. I'm sorry to break it to you if you really like the story, but Bilbo's not real. Uh, Frodo's not real. Um, they're, they're fictional characters, and if you read it like it's a true story, you're going to be disappointed. Um, or there's more things wrong with you, um, and talk to me afterwards. Um, but we, that's how we read literally. We read things as they're meant to be written. We read poetry as poetry, not as prose. Okay. So symbols are there. It's a wonderful symbol. It's a wonderful picture that we are given, that that's who we will be, and we'll be given uh, the Lord's name. We will be given the name of God in his eternal city in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, In other words, the faithful will live forever um, and bear the name Christians. Uh, That's the promise to the church in Philadelphia, to hold fast in faithfulness um, until the Lord comes. And he's coming soon. Uh, So this is a letter about faithfulness. And the church in every generation also needs to be reminded of faithfulness. uh, To hold fast uh, to the Lord. So uh, that's the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Any questions about that? Yeah. I mean, it's from a lot of places that, oh yeah, um, is that where people who want to be literal, is this where they take, there's going to be a new temple in Jerusalem? There's a lot of things that they take literally from Revelation. I'm not sure if they would point here necessarily, um, but yeah, there's a lot of places that they will point to in Revelation and say, this is literally talking about a literal fulfillment of these things. And as we get into some of those that are more prominent, then we'll, we'll talk about how 
that can't literally be true. Um, but generally, these first few letters are not where people make those mistakes. Because usually they say, you know, chapters 1 through 3, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But th- that's the easy material. That's the stuff that's more, it, things really go wild in chapter 4. Like that's, that's kind of the dividing line a lot of people will make. That chapter 4 is where things really get fantastical. And that's where you start then to, to go. So some of it is those kinds of passages. Probably not here so much, but yeah, other places that talk about the temple, Jerusalem, um, the throne, all those kinds of things. They will, there are people who do tend to take that more literally. Yeah. So maybe not here so much, but yeah, these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, has anyone heard of this being taken really literally? Okay. I didn't grow up in dispensational circles, so... I need help with dispensationalism. Um, my mom did grow up in dispensationalist circles, and she said, that's okay, we didn't understand it when we were going through it either, so um, don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, so then we have one, one last letter, a letter that comes to the church in Laodicea. Um, that's in Revelation thirteen fourteen through 22. Um, this is a letter of reproof. Letter of reproof. And let's read uh, what's to be written to the church in Laodicea. So we read in Revelation 3.14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Okay, so here again we have Jesus identifying himself um, in words from Revelation 1, 7, and 8, the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. Um, He is the one who is always faithful and true, has been from the beginning of creation, and that comes to a church Uh, for whom he has nothing but criticism. Um, So these seven letters end the way they began. Ephesus received only criticism, and Laodicea receives only criticism. Um, And we'll come back to why that might be. Um, But we have this church that receives only criticism. There's no comment about her works or what she's like, um, other than she makes Jesus sick, which is... Not a good thing to hear if you're a church. Um, you're neither hot nor cold. Um, 
you know, some people like hot coffee, some people like iced coffee, but not too many people like coffee that's used to be hot and has just gone cold in the cup. Um, you know, room temperature coffee, most people don't like. And if you make the mistake of having it in your cup and you go to drink it, and you, oh, oh, come on, um, you've let it go, go, go cold. You know, that's what Jesus is essentially saying. You, you know, if you're one or the other, that might be something, but you're actually neither. You're just lukewarm and it's the kind of thing you just want to spit out. Um, that's not a good thing for the church to hear, especially since she thinks of herself as rich, right? You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You know, here again is a church that doesn't seem to have a really good idea of of itself, um, a really poor self-image, because they think of themselves as being rich, prosperous, not really needing anything, and not realizing that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, Jesus seems to be hitting on things that would have been particularly um, right in the wheelhouse of the people of Laodicea. Um, Laodicea was a, was a place that was an industrial center. Uh, it was a very rich city. Um, and interestingly, it was really known for its banking. Uh, that was something it did very well. It was, it was well known for its textiles, for producing quality clothing, um, and it was well known for producing medicine. Um, so those were, the, those were like the three big industries in Laodicea that made it a very wealthy town and community. Um, so so think, of, think, think of that, their wealth in terms of banking, in terms of clothing, in terms of medicine, in the way that, that Jesus talks to them in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. You see how he's picking up that kind of banking imagery. But don't go to the bank for gold. Come get it from me. Gold refined by fire so that you actually might be rich. Um, And white garments so that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Right? Come to me and get clothing. Not the clothing you're making so much money off of that you're so proud of. Um, But come and get clothing from me that will actually cover yourself and the shame of your nakedness. Um... And then finally says, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Right? You, you think you have all the gold you need and all the clothing you need and all the medicine you need, but actually you need gold and you need clothing and you need medicine. Um, and the Lord says, I'll give it to you. Um, and he reminds them that despite all the hard things he's had to say about them, he says those hard things because he loves them. Right? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Um, he's telling them, you know, that he doesn't want them to be lukewarm. He wants them to come to him. Um, and it's a wonderful reminder to us in that even though there's nothing to commend this church to the Lord, even though they are lukewarm towards him, he is not lukewarm towards them. Right? He's, he doesn't say, I could take you or leave you. Um, what, what does he say? I, those I reprove and discipline because I love them. Um, and behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, what, what had we just heard? We'd heard of an open door. A door that the Lord had opened that no one can shut. And now the metaphor, he comes and says, now the door is shut and I'm on the outside. Um, and I stand at the door and knock. 
Um, I, I think it's an intentional use of that metaphor bouncing off these two churches. Because the one, I knew your works, and this is what you're like. I've set before you an open door that no one can close. And he comes again and says, I know your works, and you set before me a closed door. But behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Um, I think, you know, a lot, a, lot, a lot of use has been made of this verse. You know, behold, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Um, a lot of times in evangelist, evangelistic appeals, maybe you've heard people say that to you, you know, the Lord is standing at the door and knocking. Are you going to let him in? And um, that's just to take this out of the context for which Jesus gives it. Um, that th- This is not, you know, it, it's not that people are doing something horribly evil if they use the text in this way. I mean, I, I think in a broad sense we would say the Lord wants you to receive him in faith. That's clearly the message of the gospel we want to take out to people. So, you know, I don't want to be too hard on people who want to use this text for the right purpose of trying to win souls to Christ. They, they want people to come in, right? And so they're using this text. But, but you, can do, you can do like right doctrine, wrong text, right? Evangelism is good. Appealing to people is good. Telling them to put their faith and trust in Christ is good. But that's not what Christ is saying at this particular passage. He's saying to his church... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's a sense in which there's a closed door between us right now. Um, and I'm appealing to you to let me in. And that, that imagery is actually going back to some of the things that Jesus said in his earthly ministry and further back to, to the Old Testament. This imagery of standing and knocking. Um, think of what the Lord said in Luke 12, verses 35 to 37. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Right, that's the metaphor that's carried through in this passage. I stand at the door and knock, and he who opens to me, I will have him come in and sit with me, and he will eat with me. That, that seems to be a continuation of that metaphor. Um, it's, it's a wedding feast, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an image there of a master who's been out celebrating a wedding feast, who's coming home, and if they're ready to open and receive him, he'll actually come in and celebrate with them. They'll be incorporated, even as his servants, into the wedding feast and actually be served by him. They'll be brought into the party if they're ready to open the door when he comes, right? So there, there's a wedding feast, a wedding feast metaphor all built into that. And that probably even looks back to the Song of Solomon as well. Um, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Um, you know, th- there, this is again, here, here's another sort of appeal from Scripture in a, in a wedding, marital kind of situation. This is open the door so that we can feast together. Open the door for your good so that we can have fellowship together. And clearly the closed door of the Laodiceans is meant to stand in sharp contrast to the open door uh, 
that's set before the church in Philadelphia. Um, and so this is, this is an appeal that Jesus is making with a particular connection to things he'd said during his earthly ministry, um, things that, he, that the church is familiar with, um, and that promise that he who opens, right, um, will enter in and eat. I will come in into him and eat with him and he with me. This rich fellowship that's being spoken of. Um, and then, as in every letter, the call to conquer, to overcome. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, so to, again, it includes, it concludes the promise. If they accept his reproof, his discipline, um, they will yet reign with him in a kingdom far richer and far more powerful than the city of Laodicea could ever imagine. Um, and so there's a very distinctive pattern that has happened in these letters that are meant to kind of talk about the history of the church, right? There are, there are two churches who there's nothing but bad things said about them. Um, there's two churches where there's nothing but good things said about them. And three churches in the middle that are troubled, that have good things to say about them and have difficult things to say about them. And in this, this is kind of the whole history of the church. Right? There are, there are good churches that just need to be told, keep going. And there are bad churches that need to be told, you need to turn around. And there are troubled churches that are doing some things well and doing some things poorly. And the things they're doing well, they need to persevere. And the things they're doing poorly, they need to stop doing. Um, but in a marvelous way, this is, this is a picture of the whole history of the church. This is what churches always are. Um, bad and need of radical change, good and need of perseverance, and some good, some bad, needing to work the things out that they need to work out. So there's something in all of these churches that every church in the history of churches can look to and say, that speaks to us. That speaks to us. Um, in the same way, you can do that with, you know, the letter to the Philippians where Paul is filled with joy because they're doing a lot of things well and just need to continue. And the difference between that letter and the letter of Galatians where he says, grace and peace, what's wrong with you people? Um, those are two very different letters, but they have application to all the churches. Um, and that's, that's what we see in these letters. The church in that's suffering has to remain faithful. When it comes to love, when it comes to life and death, when it comes to making good judgment, searching, holiness, faithfulness, discipline, all of those things that come up in the life of a church, all those things that we need to hear either individually or as a church body, um, that there's a message in that for the church in every generation. Um, and so the, the whole book of Revelation we've said is about the whole history of the church. And so it's not surprising that there's a message for every church in the history of the church from one of these seven churches. Um, there, there's the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, and the church needs to be reminded that we can all have parts of that that need changing uh, throughout our history. So what these also help to remind us of is that Jesus knows the state of his churches and knows what needs to be said to each of them. Right? That Jesus whether it's a really bad church or a really good church or the troubled churches. Jesus knows them and knows what needs to be said to them and holds out hope to them. 
right? If you're a good church in the middle of a life and death struggle, Jesus has a word of hope for you. Um, and if you're a terrible church that at this point is, wants to be spit out of the mouth or you're dead, Jesus still has a word for how you can wake up. Um, the Lord has a word for his churches. He knows what they need. Um, he sees and he cares. This is a reminder to us that Jesus sees what goes on in the church. And he sees what goes on in the individual lives of Christians. And he sees through what other people see. Right? There can be times someone might look at a church and go, what a great church. And Jesus looks at that church and goes, that's not a great church. They have a reputation for being alive, but they're dead. Um, it's a wonderful reminder to us that Jesus sees things as they really are and he cares. And he cares and he knows what to say to try to help fix those things. Um, and so churches always have to be sure that we're listening to what Jesus has to say in his word, that we're paying careful attention to it, that we're keeping it and applying it, that we're recognizing that we're churches that are troubled in all these ways, um, that, that we always are needing to repent and do better in our lives, um, that when we're doing well, we need to thank God that he's worked such peace and good things in our churches. Um, and so they're reminders to all of us that God calls us as churches, he calls us as individuals. Um, that there are sometimes people who are involved in churches that are falling down, but they're not falling down. Um, and the Lord sees that too. Um, and so he's making that call to churches and to individuals to maintain fellowship with him and to overcome and holding out that promise of blessing that the church in suffering that remains faithful will rule and reign with him. Um, that that whatever, whatever we're called to endure, whatever we're called to fight through as churches, as individuals, whatever struggles we come to in this life, whether it's big things, whether it's small things, whether it's from the world or from within, whatever it is, the Lord promises if we do what he's called us to do in his word, if we hold fast to him, that soon that suffering will be over and we'll enter into fellowship with him. Um, and the blessings that are held out in this cycle are very clear. Right, The church that remains faithful, the people that remain faithful, will overcome and endure and will have the kind of intimate fellowship with the Lord that he promises in this, in this first group of letters to the churches. Um, so it's a very rich set of letters to the churches. It, it hits all of us in some sense where we live as churches and as individuals. Um, it has a word that it can speak to us. And so that's really the purpose of this first cycle is to introduce us to um, these important themes Themes that look back to chapter 1. So most of these things will, you know, they all look back to chapter 1 in some sense. Um, but as we go on, I think we'll also see that these look forward to the other, to the other seven cycles. Um, and have started themes that we'll continue to see repeated as we go along. Um, and so what this is going to help us do is actually, it helps to orient us to the book. That when we keep reading things like those who dwell in the, in the earth, we start to, we start to recognize these things. Um, we, we can say, oh, I've, I've heard that before. I remember that from earlier. And we can kind of help take that forward with us in ways that will help orient us as we go forward in the book as well. Um, so that's kind of the first cycle um, from, the, from the seven letters. So we, we, we said there's seven cycles, so we've kind of completed the first one. 
And as I said, there's a lot of people who are like, okay, you know, chapters, chapters one through three, that's the kind of the basic stuff, the easy stuff, the stuff that speaks very clearly. Um, it's chapter four where, people, where things get really weird. Um, and we go to heaven, and there's a lot of strange things in heaven. And so, so we've been dealing with the easy stuff, and now we're going to move on you know, to, the, to the radically different, otherworldly, weird stuff. And I think the first thing we need to do before we move on is recognize that this is what has happened in the first three chapters is connected to what's coming. It's not right to see this radical break all of a sudden in the book. That's completely artificial to see that somehow, I mean, there's no other book of the Bible that works like that, where it's like, now you're just, now there's a radical separation from what's coming now, right? Books don't work that way. You know, um, chapter, th- chapter four is meant to follow chapter three. This is the kind of high profile stuff you learn at seminary. Um, chapter four is meant to follow chapter three. And we know that because there are all kinds of connections that chapter four makes to what's come before it, even as it goes on. Um, it's not starting a whole new thing. It's building on what came before it. Um, and so before we really get into, you know, cycle two and get into that, we can see how these first seven letters and what has happened to this point in the book is setting us up for what happens when we go back to heaven. Because what happened when we were in chapter one, John is on earth praising the Lord. He hears a voice behind him and he turns and he sees heaven. Right? And he sees Jesus in heaven, and there's a voice that speaks to him, and a voice that tells him, this is what you're to tell the angels of the seven churches to do. And then we've spent two chapters hearing about that. And what all of us should want to do, if we've been, you know, if you were thinking about this all week like I was, um, what we should all want to do is say, can we go back to heaven now? Because we got this glimpse of heaven and we, we got the beginning of a description of heaven, and then we went away from it and started talking about these places. Right? You know, we were, oh, heaven and Jesus, and then all of a sudden it's like, now let's go to Ephesus. Like, no, they're messed up. I want to go back to heaven. What was going on there? Let's go back to heaven. And that's really what chapter four is. It's now having the earthly message that's gone to Jesus, gone from Jesus to the churches in this world. This is how you're to deal with suffering. We're in a sense going back to heaven now. Um, that, that, that that sort of earthly function has been completed um, and John is called now back up to heaven. We see that in chapter four. So if you um, pick up your scriptures again and look at Revelation chapter four, I just want to read through the first part of verse six. because so I think that's about as far as we're going to be able to, to get tonight. But after this, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Um, So you can see maybe at first glance why people might think this is a radically new going on in the book. Um, and I didn't even get to the four living creatures that look weird. And, you know, but I think that's biting off more than we can chew for this, for this evening. But you see that maybe you noticed it right away that as we move from chapter three to chapter four, there's a lot in chapter four that is reaching back to chapter one. Um, there's a lot of continuity between what has come before and what is coming now. Um, there's a lot of intentional connections between things. Um, we, and we should take note of how many connections there are just in these first few verses, connecting with things that we had already heard in chapter 1. Um, so John is given a vision of heaven. Um, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Well, if we look back to chapter 1, verse 12... Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, um, and he turned and saw the voice. So he saw into heaven. I saw the golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Okay, so he heard the, he saw a vision of heaven in the first chapter. He sees a vision of heaven here. We're not going to keep doing this in that much depth, but um, you keep seeing these connections. He hears a voice. And chapter 4, verse 1 specifically tells us it was the first voice which he had heard speaking. Um, and it, unless we forget what that voice sounded like, like a trumpet. Right? We had talked about the fact that there was John on Patmos in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he all of a sudden hears this voice like a trumpet behind him. That had to be an unsettling feeling. Remember I told you the story of walking with my nephew in front of the car and hitting the car alarm and it honked and he was right in front of it and this little guy just, you know, sorry, that's good uncling on my part. Um, You know, he saw him just kind of flinch and you have to imagine that's what would happen to John. All of a sudden he has a voice behind you when you're on an island that you think you're by yourself and so he turns to see um, the voice. Well, it's the same thing here. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said... This is a resumption of what had happened before, right? Um, and the promise of the voice is still the same. In chapter 119, he was, he was told, I'm going to show you what will happen in the future. Um, and the voice says the same thing here. I will show you what must take place after this. Um, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, we were told in chapter 1. In verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. Um, and so a lot of these things are the same. He sees one seated on a throne. Well, in verse 1, he just saw the king. Um, Now he sees the one seated on the throne. Um, And we'll we'll see as we go on the language of worship throughout chapter 4 and chapter 5. We remember that John was um, that filled with worship on that in the first chapter. Right? There was the blessing of the first chapter that we hear Um, Often on the Lord's Day, I try to use it every second service as our blessing from Revelation, grace and peace from him who was and is and is coming, right? That wonderful blessing was there in chapter one, the doxology that follows that to the one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, right? 
all that worship that's there, the confession of faith that's made in chapter 1, verse 7, the fact that it's on the Lord's day, on the day of worship, um, in verse 10 of chapter 1, all of that is brought up here again. Worship is shot through chapters 4 and 5 of this section. Chapter 4 really focuses on what we're going to call the old song of praise, you notice in the, new, in the Bible, there's always reference to let's sing the new song. Um, and that's not an appeal for contemporary worship. Um, what that's talking about is the new song is different than the old song. The old song is God is a creator God. That's the old song that creation has always sung to the glory of the one who made it. The new song that enters into creation is that God is not just a creator, but a redeemer. Um, and so in, in Revelation particularly, we'll, we'll see that that's the new song. Not just that God is a creator God. That's always been the song that creation could sing. But there's a new song to sing because the, the lamb has conquered. Um, the lamb is the savior that's sung of in chapter five. Um, and so that's, that's one of the features. I don't think I, I think I neglected to mention it. That's one of the features of the second cycle um, is that it has a really long introduction. Um, The second cycle really goes from chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 1. And really, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, 14, I think, functions as the the introduction to the second cycle. Um, So it's a long introduction. I think it's 5, 14. Um, It's a long introduction to the cycle. Um, I thought I'd omitted it, but I actually hadn't gotten there yet. So... um, just doing my own housekeeping up here. Never mind me. Okay, um, so we do that first. And so we, have, we, have, we see this imagery that's being repeated from chapter one over and over and over again, including the image of an open door um, that we, we already had heard. And so Revelation 4.1 is calling John to come up here and get a closer look at the things you had, you had already seen. And with John, all of us are getting to go up and see. Or that's the part. Of, that's the that's the purpose of the book of Revelation. It's as if John is walking us all in to see what he sees. Um, and what is really happening is not so much that there's a radical change from what's come before, but what's happening in a certain sense is the camera is going to pan back from just looking at Jesus to getting a bigger picture of what's going on in heaven. Um, it's not really surprising, is it, that if John turns around and sees heaven, that his gaze is immediately attracted to Christ. Um, I, I remember hearing, hearing a, a story someone told me about uh, adult Sunday school in Escondido, and someone was asking, there was a seminarian teaching the class, and somebody asked the seminarian, you know, what about these people who claim to have seen heaven? You know, they die and they, they claim that they went to a white light and they write books about it, whatever. And the uh, seminarian was kind of struggling. And as a seminarian, you don't want to say too much. You don't want to say too little, but you haven't really thought about it. And you don't want to step on people's toes. And, you know, he was kind of struggling. And in the crowd was Reverend Kaminga. And I don't know if you know Reverend Kaminga, but Reverend Kaminga was my minister growing up. He was retired at the time. And someone said, well, Reverend, and Reverend Kaminga, I think seeing the seminarian struggling, thought he would weigh in and help. And he said, I don't believe any of that. And everyone was kind of shocked that he was so sure that that was not true. And he said, and because, he said, because for this reason, who sees heaven 
And Jesus isn't the first thing they see. He said, in what world is a vision of heaven where Jesus is not front and center, a real vision of heaven? Um, and you know, everyone in the room thought, yeah, that's got to be right, right? I mean, who, who sees heaven where Jesus is not front and center? Um, and I think, you know, that came from years of contemplating, I think, the Lord and the things that the scriptures say about the Lord. But heaven is where Christ is central, if you're going to see a vision of heaven, there's nothing you're going to see but Jesus. That's going to be central in heaven. I mean, even those of us who are going, looking forward to going to heaven and seeing loved ones that have died in the Lord, and you know, we, we, we hold out hope that one day we'll be reunited with those loved ones, we'll see them in heaven. I somehow think that when we get there, sometimes in our minds we so long to see them that we think, you know, that's the first thing I'm going to go do. The first thing I do, I'm going to go find grandma, go find grandpa. But I think the first thing we're going to do is just be marveling at Jesus. I think it's going to be really hard to tear ourselves away from Jesus, and we'll probably notice after a while that the person we were longing to see is standing next to us there. But we both won't be looking at each other. We'll both be looking at Jesus because he's front and center. So it's not that surprising that when John gets a first glimpse of heaven, where does his gaze go immediately? To the Lord. And he sees the Lord in glory there. Right? And it's not until the Lord can come and say, all right, now let me, let me pull back a little bit and let you see the bigger view of what's going on in heaven, that John gets to see this bigger expanded view of what's going on, um, to understand this place that we are uh, citizens of. Um, and so what is it a reminder of? It's, it's a reminder that, again, like we saw in chapter one, where is Jesus? In a galaxy far, far away? No, he's right over John's shoulder. All he has to do is turn and see him and talk to him, right? He's close enough to hear him. He's close enough for the Lord to reach out and put his hand on his shoulder, right? He's, he's within an arm's reach of the Lord. Um, and what, what is the Lord doing? He's trying to remind all of us still here on earth as citizens of heaven, the Lord is still just that close. And heaven is still just that close, um, my dad wrote, as the heavenly Jesus is always very much in the midst of the earthly churches, so the heavenly worship is the reality in which our earthly worship and life as Christians participates. Right, in chapter one, it was Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. That's what he saw. The Lord in the midst of his churches. Now here, John's being called up and the churches are coming into the midst of the Lord's throne room. That's the that's what's always going on. The Lord is with his church and the church is with its Lord. Um, right? So much so that, that Paul can say that in Ephesians, that we've been seated in the heavenly places with him. We have been seated, not we will be seated. Right? There's a future glory to look forward to, but John is not talking about the future glory. He's talking about what's happening right now. And right now God is with his people and his people are with him. And the reason we don't want to lose the connection between the first cycle and this cycle is because we saw how practical and helpful and pastoral the first cycle was. How much it had to say to the churches in the midst of suffering. And we don't want to lose that thread throughout the book of the Revelation. It's still meant to be very practical and pastoral to people in the world who are suffering now. To the church in the world as it's suffering now. So it should be an encouragement to us to see all these connections because then we'll say, however weird it gets, because it does get weird at times, 
But however weird it gets, it's still always meant to be practical, pastoral, comforting, and encouraging to God's people. And even though the imagery is going to change, that reality doesn't change. Um, Even though we have this long introduction that's going to introduce the seven seals, which are really the second cycle, um, it's going to tell us some glorious things about worship as we go along. Um, And so that's why, in a sense, this introduction is so long in comparison to the introduction of chapter 1. Because here he saw the Lord and got a little glimpse of heaven, and now the camera's going to pull back and he's going to get a big view of what's going on in heaven um, as part of the introduction of the, of the second cycle. Um, so we're going to get a much fuller and broader picture of heaven. So that should be exciting for us as we go along into this letter to see that wonderful picture um, so that we can think of heaven as being uh, close to us. And so the picture really begins here in the, in the throne room of God. That's where, that's where things go, is, is to the throne room of God. Um, and, you know, again, there's some sort of glorious descriptions um, of the things that John sees. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Um, talk about understatements of understatements. You know, here there's a throne and someone's sitting on it. And it's almost like John's like, that. that's, a, it, that's what I see, but it's, I mean, it's bigger than that. But that's, that's the essential part of it. Let me try to describe it to you. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. I mean, you have these descriptions in terms of glorious colors um, and glorious images because it's all glorious, but it's, he has limited capacity to explain it. Um, imagine sort of having to use the images of the fallen world to describe the perfection of heaven. Um, that's, that's the problem he's going to continue to keep having. And that's why he'll say, it was like this, um, or it had the appearance of this. Um, you know, I always, I always thought, you know, how does, an, how does a rainbow look like an emerald? Like an emerald I think of as being green. A rainbow I think of as having a bunch of colors. Um, so how do you have a, a green rainbow? Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the twofold, the picture of the glory of a rainbow in, it, in its bigness and also the, the clarity of a gemstone as it's shining. And he's trying to say, there, you know, there's a breadth and a depth to it. There's a, there's a hugeness to it and, a, and an intricate quality to it. There's a shining out in a broad sense and a shining out in a, in a multifaceted, amazing kind of gemstone sense. But he's going to be sort of limited in those kinds of ways. Um, maybe you guys know what jaspers and carnelians are. I don't. Does anyone know what a jasper looks like? Doesn't sound like anyone else knows. If you want to take a stab at it, no one's going to know. Carnelian. Does anyone know what a carnelian is? Are they red? Okay. So yeah, I mean, vivid colors, vivid images. That John is going to try to do that, but. Again, that's, that's sort of the amazing thing about keeping coming back to these things. It's so great he's having trouble describing it, but that's the reality we're a part of now. Um, that, that's the reality. That's like our proper place to be. That's our proper home. That's where we're really from. 
um, is the place where all of these things are going on. And so it, it's, it's great and it's glorious. Um, and, and in the midst of these great and glorious statements, it's somewhat beyond what we're able to comprehend and we're limited in how we can describe it. Um, but in another sense, we're, we're there. Right, that's Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Um, we are seated there now. Um, that, that's the place. There is, there is a sense in which we will one day be there, but there's also a sense in which we are already there. Uh, the, we are there with the Lord. Um, and so we don't want to lose sight of that even as we get into some of the, the glories of this. Um, so we're in the throne room of God. There are images that we can't really completely comprehend. Um, it's, a, it's a splendid throne room. There's a splendid one who's on the throne and he's surrounded by other thrones. So there are 24 thrones in the heavenly throne room around, around the throne. Um, and those people are finely attired. Um, around the, uh, uh, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with, what, with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes, flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, and so you have these 24 thrones. Now, who are the 24 elders on the thrones? Are you going to get to be one of the elders on the throne? Anyone have a guess? Yeah, I think that's right. The 12 tribes of Israel are represented and the 12 apostles. Now, why do you think that, Dan? I'm going to put you on the spot. Well, they symbolize the, the leaders of the, the children of God in the Old Testament. The leaders of the Old Testament, the leaders of the New Testament. They'll, appeal, they'll also appear later in the book of the Revelation, right? With the foundations and the gates. and um, So that, that, then it'll be more specific. But I think that's the picture that's being painted here. The, the 12 tribes of Israel, the old covenant people being represented, and the 12 apostles, the new covenant people being represented. Um, but notice it doesn't say 12 and 12, or 12 over here and 12 over here, it says 24. Um, it, there's, we know, I think, I think that's right. Um, sorry to put you on the spot, Dan. Um, I think that's right. I'm only sort of sorry to put you on the spot. But um, I think that's right. It's 12 tribes and 12 apostles to symbolize the whole people of God from both covenants. But I think it's important to see also that they're all represented as one group of 24. Um, that it's not the church and Israel. Um, that's what so much of bad theology of the end times is centered around, that there's the church and there's Israel. 
There's not the church and Israel. There's one people of God. There's the true Israel of God that includes the 12 tribes of Israel and expands to include the world. The world has been brought into the church as was, as was always intended by God. Um, God's purpose was always through one people to expand to all people. That was always the promise that that's what Messiah would come and do. He would expand David's tent and everybody would come in. Um, and that, that's what always was meant to happen. That was always God's plan for the whole world. Um, and so there was a way that he worked, first through one man and then through one family and then through one nation um, and then built them up into a people and then they diminished down to two tribes and then a remnant of the two tribes and all the way down to one true son of Israel. And from that son of Israel exploded a people. Um, that's in one sense what God has always been doing. But it's, it's interesting to see that has to be who these 24 represent. But they're 24 together. Not two groups of 12. There are 24 elders and they are also clothed like the king. Um, they are the ones who have received the promise in that sense. Um, representing the 12 patriarchs, 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles. Um, these 24 elders symbolize the unity of the redeemed in the two covenants. Uh, which we see explicitly in the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Um, and so we find out in Revelation 21 who these 24 represent. But it represents the united people of God. There's one people of God. Um, that's what these elders beautifully represent. And they are ruling with him. Right? They are also on thrones. They are also wearing crowns. Um, and, you know, people can get into, like, why are they on thrones? Like, why, how do you get a crown? You know, what does it mean that they're... You can get into all these symbols, but part of the problem was what you do is you miss the obvious when you start doing things like that. Um, you know, because if you had a little kid and you showed them a picture of a throne room and people sitting on thrones wearing crowns, they would say, well, that's got to be a king or a queen, right? They wouldn't have any trouble. Sometimes we make it more complicated than it needs to be. If you're sitting on a throne with a crown, you're a king, or a queen, right? Um, and that's what they're representing doing. They're ruling with him. Um, and his judgments are going out, right? Lightnings, rumblings of thunder. Um, judgments are going out, and before the throne, there are seven torches. Um, and we know what the seven torches are because we're told they're the seven spirits of God. Um, seven represents the fullness of knowledge and the power of the one spirit of God. Um, seven is going gonna, is gonna to be a number that comes up again and again. There are certain numbers that will continue to come up in the book of the Revelation that are, again, not meant to be complicated. Um, four tends to be the number of the earth, the four corners of the earth. Um, ten can be completion. Seven represents the fullness of knowledge and the power of the Spirit of God. Um, he's represented as a sevenfold spirit, the seven torches. Um, and so these are symbols um, to be read as symbols. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not really seven torches. Um, he's a spirit, but he's being represented to us in this picture um, of the light and power that's before the throne. Um, so we have, these, we have these vivid pictures for us, um, and we're going to continue to see what they represent for God's people. But this is the beginning of John's view of the throne room. Um, where he begins seeing the things that probably he expects to see. 
Um, knowing his scriptures, knowing his Bible, knowing the promises that Christ made, that those who overcome with him will rule with him. Here he's seeing a vision of heaven, and there they are. His people ruling with him as he promised. Um, ruling in heaven. And then uh, we get into you know, the four living creatures and the sea of crystal. Um, and those are some different pictures that we can, we can talk about. One of the things that is going to be important for us is to see how these images relate to images that they knew. Um, and so for John to see a sea of crystal, um, why would that have been significant to an Israelite? Does anyone know? What is crystal? What was that? Yeah. Salt. Okay. Um, one of the things that you learn about the Old Testament people of God is that they didn't have nice beaches like we have beaches. There weren't many places you could go and have like a nice relaxing time at the ocean. The ocean for them was always beating against the shore. And so it was always kind of a scary image. It was an image of something that was going to destroy you. And so the waters always represented really turbulent things for them. Um, and you notice that even in the New Testament, right, you even experienced fishermen can't necessarily trust even the waters on the lake around them from not all of a sudden being whipped up and going against them. That was true of the ocean. And so a lot of the imagery of the Old Testament when it comes to waters is turbulence, um, danger, and stuff. And so what does the sea look like before the throne of God? It's calm. It's a crystal sea. It doesn't move. It shines like the glory of the water, but there's none of the turbulence. Why? Because there's, nothing, there's no unquiet before the throne of God. Everything is under control. Um, that's why another place in Revelation, there's no sea. You know, for those of you who love the beach or, you know, served in the Navy or something. No sea? Why, would that, why is that in heaven? Well, because sea represents turbulence. And so the way it's saying there's not going to be no, it's not there's no beaches in the new heavens and the new earth. The point is there's, there's no more of that turbulent, dangerous unrest. So what is the sea like before the throne of God? It's like a sea of crystal. There's nothing threatening in that. Because what can threaten before the throne of God? Um, it, it's a picture of absolute control. You know, that's sort of the glory of heaven. There's nothing out of control. And there's nothing really to worry about before the throne. Um, until questions begin to be asked about the scroll. Um, and that's, but that takes us beyond what we want to talk about tonight. So that's kind of the introduction to, to the second cycle. Um, what, what is going to be going on in the second cycle. And I thought I'd written down somewhere what the theme of the second cycle was. The church's suffering advances the purposes of God in history. So that's really what's going to go on in the second cycle. The church's suffering advances the purpose of God in history. Um, so you'll notice that, like we talked about before with Revelation, then I'll, I'll end with this. But we, we've said that one of our goals is to be able to see that we're talking about the whole history of the church in the book of the Revelation. And we're going to do it from different angles, and so that we're switching the angle a little bit on suffering. So from the first angle, it was, it was particularly focused on the churches. In the midst of their suffering, they have to remain faithful. Um, and so this is a very earthly perspective, a kind of down and dirty, this is what the church is going to need to be about in this world. 
right? And in our suffering, we have to remain faithfully. Corporately, individually, we have to remain faithful. Now the camera angle is going to shift a little bit and say, now what is heaven accomplishing through the suffering that the church is called to endure? And we're going to find through the second cycle that actually the suffering that the church endures in history is advancing the purpose of God for the church in history. Um, so you see how that's, that's not completely departing from the theme, but it's changing the angle at which we're going to look at it. Um, and you can learn a lot from shifting the angle. Right? You can see things that you didn't see before. You know, the, the World Series is going on now, and it's always interesting. They've got, you know, a million cameras on, on everything now. So when they hit a home run, you can see how far it went, and then you can see the camera angle. It just focuses on the guy who hit it as he, you know, looks at the dugout or does whatever he does. Um, you know, you can see all the different things that are happening, and it's always interesting to see things you didn't see when you saw it live. Um, you, you get to see how the dugout reacted and how they see that it's finally out of there and they all jump out of the dugout. You know, you, you get to see that picture and that's what Revelation is going to do. It's going to focus us on the, the actual event of suffering and what that means for the church. Then it's going to shift the angle and say, now what is God achieving through what we're suffering? How is this advancing God's purposes in history? And to get that view, you really need the heavenly perspective. You need to, you need to go to the throne room and recognize that there's a king sitting on the throne who's superintending all things, who's governing all things, and says, don't worry, I know exactly what I'm doing to move things. Um, that there's actually a purpose to the church going through this. And actually my purposes are being advanced through this in history. Um, and so that's kind of the, the helpful thing about understanding Revelation in this way. To understand that there's different perspectives that we're looking at. It's not a different story altogether, um, but we want to look at it through a different perspective. Um, and it can be, become more and more glorious as you go on because you shift from Jesus talking to the church to the Lamb who's conquered arriving in heaven, having overcome for the church. Um, and so it can also increase the glory by shifting the camera angle in that sense. Um, you need to endure turns into, okay, here's the one who's, who's endured. You need to overcome shifts to the one who's overcome. You need to conquer shifts to the one who is conquered. Um, and that becomes more glorious. So hopefully we'll get into that more in the second cycle as we go on next week. But are there any questions about all of that? Yeah. And that, that yeah, that whoever... Just as you said, it all comes from God, through God, to God. It all comes back to him. It comes from him. It comes as a result of his love for the church that has done all these things for the church. And even though the book of the Revelation is always going to talk in terms of you're either in or you're out, um, we know that it does that because it's giving the picture of when, when, it, when this history comes to an end, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God and we're either going to be with the Lamb or we're going to be against Him. We're either going to be those who dwell on the earth and those who dwell in heaven. So Revelation will always talk about those things as if they're settled divisions. Um, but we always want to hold out hope that today is the day of salvation. And so we still call people to come to the Lord. And when they come, just like we've been going through in, in Sunday school in the morning, why did I get the gift of faith when someone else didn't? It was only because God showed his love to me. It was only because he put his love on me that I could be given the gift of faith so that I couldn't boast. But when I look back and say, who did this come from? It came from him. 
um, that the Father sent the Son to redeem a people. The Son comes into the world to redeem a people. Um, and that's why ultimately we can know that these things have to come to pass because it started with him. He continues it. He finishes it. Um, he's, he's, as the writer of Hebrews says, Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So we're called to run the race with endurance, but we start and finish because of what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Okay. Very good. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I put you on the spot, right? I, I didn't know if anyone had heard that before or not. So there, there are no bad answers, especially when it comes to revelation and trying to figure out symbolism. So don't feel bad. Um, yeah, the Dead Sea is so salty because it's so low. It, everything runs down to that. But, you know, they have, because of the lakes, the way the wind whips up, even for experienced sailors, right? They could go out on the Sea of Galilee and still get caught in a storm not knowing, and the, the ocean represented a lot of danger for them. Um, you can think of Jonah when he's out at sea and they get in a storm and someone goes, everybody better start praying to their God because somebody's got to help us out and find Jonah sleeping. Like, who's your God? Have you prayed to him yet? So reach out because we're going down. Um, and then when Jonah says, well, my God is the God of the heavens and the earth and everything in the sea and underneath the sea, they go, oh, well, I bet it's your fault. <laughs> what should we do? You better pitch me overboard. <laughs> um, which also tells you, I mean, that, that gives us the symbolism in the Old Testament of the magnitude of that, that judgment, right? To be cast out into the sea in the storm um, is kind of the, the big picture of judgment. So, no. And symbol, I'm always interested to hear what people have heard before. So some people have heard these things. So sometimes that's just a way of me gauging. Am I telling you something you already know? Or, so don't worry about it. I put you on the spot. I'm sorry for doing that. Yeah. Next time I'll just keep picking on Dan. He's got broad shoulders. Um, Any other questions? Comments? Complaints? All right, let's close our time in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your book of the Revelation that you've given to us, that it helps us to see the things that will soon take place. We're thankful for the blessing you promised to those who read it and to hear it read. Uh, We pray that we would have received a blessing from you tonight. We pray that we continue to be comforted by your word and the reminder of how much our Lord cares for his churches, uh, how he reaches out to us in in our waywardness and wickedness that he might restore us so that we would overcome and have fellowship with him. Thank you for the vision of heaven that you give to us as an encouragement that we are people from heaven and it's not just a future reality that awaits your people, but we are in a sense there now, with our union with Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Help to remind us of that when we face the difficulties of this world. And so help us, Lord, as a church and as individuals to remain faithful to the Lord despite what we suffer, that we might continue to walk with our Lord Jesus Christ and endure with him, knowing that if we endure, we will certainly overcome with him. May we think of those wonderful blessings that he holds out to the churches in this passage. And would you help us as we go forward to recognize that you have a purpose in suffering and that you're advancing your purposes in history for your church, for our good, and for your glory. So Lord, thank you for this time. Please care for everyone that we might get safely home. Forgive us our sins, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you for coming. You're dismissed.